Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. I'm so glad you're here. Before we get started with the show proper, a quick program note. I am going to be taking a vacation next week. Not going to be traveling anywhere, just going to take a little time to do other work and to maybe spend more time with my family. My daughter's home from college. The other one's going next year, and I want to make sure we have quality time together. So another thing I want to discuss before we get to the guests is something I've discussed for the last couple of weeks. It's our Best Places 2021 article, which is very different this year because this year, we got a lot of amazing writers to help us with it. Uh, And it had a different focus. In years past, it was all about what are the great places in other parts of the world and in the United States, but, but mostly the other parts of the world that you should go out and explore right now. You know, when you finish reading this article, go out and explore. This year, everything is different. Not only Uh, travel, although that's hugely different, uh, but also maybe why we travel and the fact that we're not traveling right now. But we can still think about destinations because they have a lot to show us. They're places where history has happened, where great nature sites may be, where we can learn a little bit about our friends and neighbors. And so that's what this year's article was about. And I'm proud to say, and I'm I'm raising this because I want you all to check out these articles. Our little article has spawned a whole bunch of other articles commenting on it. So you can read about our article in the Washington Post and uh, in the Associated Press and Axios also covered it uh, for their newsletter. So that was really, really thrilling for us. Uh, it was all very positive. <laughs> no, nobody is saying, what was Thromers doing? What the hell were they thinking? No, it was all very nice. But some different um, thoughts on it, which as somebody who helped create this article, I found really fascinating. And if you've read it, I think you'll find these offshoot articles pretty interesting too. Okay, let's start the show. Our first guest is Diane Cardwell. She is the author of a wonderful new memoir called Rockaway, Surfing Headlong into a New Life. Welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Diane. Thanks so much for having me. So in your book, you are in your 40s. It's a memoir. And you discover surfing. What was the initial impetus that made you want to surf? Well, it's funny. You know, I... Grew up, as you know, in Manhattan. Um, Yes, we went to high school together. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the land of high rises and concrete canyons. And I had spent time growing up on the beach, but I had never even thought about surfing. I didn't like big waves. I thought you had to be insane to want to try it. But I was thinking of those gigantic gigantic waves that you see like professionals and competitors on wide world of sports uh, sure. growing up. But then I I was in Montauk um, at the time I was a reporter at the New York Times and I was writing about sort of the new hotel gentrification scene out there. And I thought, well, you know, I hear this is a surf town, right? Maybe, maybe I should go see what the surfers think about all this. And so I went to the surf beach um, and I stood there and I did. I ended up not interviewing anybody because I was huh. just 
transfixed by what I saw in the water. And it was just nothing like what I had ever imagined surfing to be. There were tiny little waves. There were these incredibly graceful looking creatures, um, you know, kind of mellow. And it almost looked like they were dancing on the water. And I just Mm -hmm. thought it was the most beautiful kind of in tune with nature, in sync with the ocean thing you could possibly do. And I thought, huh, maybe I could do that. And then I came back later that summer, took a lesson, was terrible, but, <laughs> but, but got to my feet for like an instant and I was immediately hooked. I just thought this feeling of tapping and force of the universe, gliding over the water, flying towards the shore, it was just a miracle to me. Well, that, that that was kind of the miracle to me as a reader in the book, because I came to the book with a lot of preconceptions. To me, when you say surfing, I think Spicoli exactly. in Fast Times at Ridgemont <laughs> High. And I think you probably have to be high exactly. to be surfing. And I, you know, I know it's a sport, but I don't really think of it as a sport. But that's totally wrong, yeah. right? Yeah. So so it is very much a sport. And there um you know, and very competitive and it's going to be in the Olympics this summer for the first time, um, next Mm. summer rather. Right. And, but what's interesting is that it does give you a kind of high, right? I mean, you get this adrenaline rush from it, but you don't have to be, you know, a kind of blonde tattooed stoner dude (laughs) to get into it and to love it. And in fact, in New York and a lot of other kind of urban surf towns and surf scenes, the surfers are actually kind of, you know, intense, ambitious people who are basically wrapping their lives around surfing, like working extra jobs, working weird hours, doing whatever they can so that when that wave is good, they can hit it. Well, that was another key element of the book is you you not only took up a hobby, which became very central to your life. I don't know if you can call that a hobby, mm-hmm. uh, but you also created a new social community for yourself. Right. And you do that by moving to Rockaway, hence the name of the book. But also you travel to different places to learn surfing, to try surfing in different places. And every one of those places seems to have an inbuilt community. Or am I exaggerating? No, that's absolutely right. So one of the things that was kind of transformational for me about surfing was um, was in fact the travel because I was divorced at the time that I started learning. And it, it kind of gave my life this this focus and brought me a new community and new social life. But it also gave me a way to travel, which is something that I had been looking for. You know, my, I'd been in this relationship for 15 years. Mm. Um, you know, we dated many years before we were married and travel was a big part of our lives. And right. I, you know, I'm not without gumption, but I'm not a big solo traveler. And so I couldn't quite figure like, I, I can't see myself. It's like, well, I'm never going to go like, you know, backpacking on my own to Machu Picchu, right? That's just not, that's just not who I, (laughs) who I am. Um, But with surfing, you know, you pretty much every place has a surf school or, you know, people who will give you lessons. Being in the water, it's very easy to meet people, especially if, you know, you're sitting, you're waiting for a wave, maybe you strike up a conversation with the person next to you, you learn more about the place, you get to experience something with other people. Um, And that's just something that 
I found very valuable. Now, are there places where both the surfing and the community associated with it will be better for beginners? I mean, where if somebody wants to follow in your footsteps, where do they go? What do they do? Well, they should definitely find a pl- find places that are designated as beginner breaks and or thought to be beginner breaks, and they should definitely take lessons. I just think it's, you know, there's this idea that you can just grab a board and go out there on your own and you'll you'll pick it up. And it's just it's just a, not a good idea for for <laughs> for a number of reasons, which is one, it's a lot more it's a lot harder than it looks. Two, if you don't know the kind of underwater geography of the break, you could get yourself mm. into trouble, right? There might be rocks, there might be a reef, there might be places that are just bad to take off or to or to fall off the board. Um, and you might endanger other surfers and yourself. But, you know, I mean, I've I've surfed a number of different places in California and Hawaii and Costa Rica and Puerto Rico. And I've been and Cape Cod even. And I've always just, you know, Google is your friend and, <laughs> you know, just places that can tell you, you know, reviews of surf surf shops, the surf local surf shops can hook you up with an instructor. Um, but I would start that way. Right. Do you still take lessons when you go someplace new or do you just hit the waves? Are you expert enough now to do that? It depends. So some places, um, if it's completely unfamiliar to me, I will, I might take a lesson, but there are a couple places, especially um, Southern California, where I just, I know people who have surfed there and they've given me advice or when I'll go rent a board and just ask that, at the surf shop, right? Like anything I need to watch out for, any end of the break that I should stay away from. Right. Um, and then what I, I, I'm expert enough, even though I'm still not good. <laughs> I'm sure you're good. You, you do it almost every day, no, I'm right? Not. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know what I can do and what I think, um, as people are learning is something that they should get comfortable with is I can paddle out and find a place to sit where there's nobody taking off and there's nobody coming in and you just watch and see Mm. where are the other surfers taking off? What is the structure of the lineup, right? Like who gets to go and when, and then try to work your way into that rhythm. Right. Well, one of the things that really blew my mind in the book was how intellectual the sport is. At one point you go into the fact that each place not only has this underwater topography, but the waves that are approaching you, you have to find out what else is happening in the world. Is there a storm mm-hmm. on the other side of the ocean? Yeah. Uh, is there a, a tide that happens here all the time? You have to become almost a marine biologist yep. to do this well. Yeah. Well, so, so one of the things that happens with surfing is when you start to get really into it is you become a kind of amateur meteorologist, right? You hmm. start learning about things like upper level troughs and, you know, wow. um, and, and, and sort of. What, what's an upper level trough? Uh, it, it's basically a certain kind of band of air pressure. Um, I can't remember which level of the atmosphere it's in, but it tends to, you know, draw storm activity up. So basically this is, this is what, these are some of the forces that guide whether um, a storm forming off the coast of West Africa comes, how it, how it develops and how it will travel. And, and if it will bring 
the east coast of the United States waves. <laughs> and these, I mean, these are obviously global forces and they guide what's going on in the Pacific and what's going on in the Atlantic and, and every other body of water. And, it, and, and the very complex interplay of tides and cycles of the moon and yeah. those storms and whatever the underwater topography, which is called bathymetry, is will determine whether you're going to get waves or not. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and you also t talk in the book, and this also takes you away from the Spicoli stereotype, mm -hmm. uh, that this is a sport that the Polynesians mm -hmm. had been doing for centuries. And I don't know why I didn't realize that, but it makes that makes sense. Right. So it's uh, what we think of, you know, so modern day surfing definitely has its roots in um, ancient Polynesian surfing, but there's evidence that people, that humans have been riding some sort of craft in the surf, whether it's, you know, planks or bundles of reeds or logs um, or, you know, beautifully carved surfboards all over the place. As, as long as we, <laughs> we can tell like that it's for centuries. Yeah. Um, so Peru, West Africa and, and of course, the Polynesians, who are the progenitors of our modern day surfing. But the sport has changed drastically because of modern technology, the way they build surfboards Certainly. right now. Certainly. So the, the Polynesians, the royalty surfed these enormous boards, boards that could reach like 50 50 feet long. Um, I think, I I'm, I'm hope I'm not misremembering that number, but anyway, very heavy, large wood boards. And that has evolved to be much lighter, harder, polyester, sort of a styrofoam, different kinds of styrofoam-like materials that are then wrapped in fibercloth and epoxy so that they are super light, but super durable. Now, I hope this isn't a sexist question, but I, I, as I said at the beginning, Spicoli is the one I think of, and I always think of it as a male sport. Was the change in the surfboards, did that make it more female friendly, you know, for, easier for women who might have less, I don't know, upper body strength? Because it was clear from the book how much strength you needed to develop to do this well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so... It's hard to know because because the truth of the matter is there have been women surfing all the way back. So so Polynesian ancient you know ancient Polynesian women surfed and royalty surfed and were among some of the best surfers. So but I I would say that certainly as I mean certainly it does take upper body strength. I think surfing is natch is probably naturally easier for men at least the pop up and paddling, but the actual riding of the board, women might might have an advantage because we have a lower center of gravity. So certainly you've seen more women um, become more prominent in the sport. And I see, you know, there are tons and tons of women out there at the break where I surf and also when I when I've traveled. So so I think, you know, I just I just don't know what the numbers actually are. But professionally, women surfing has definitely taken off in the last several years. And, but, you know, you see women taking on big wave surfing. Sure. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So in the book, you change your whole life. You move to Rockaway so that you can surf more regularly. Did 
you have, how did you overcome your fears? I mean, I think a lot of people listening to the segment may say, well, isn't she scared of sharks? Or isn't she scared of, of being injured? I mean, it looks like a dangerous sport. How did you, you talk about this in the book, but how do you get over the fears? Well, I think... I mean, so the answer is yes, I'm afraid of all those things. Um, <laughs> Have you ever seen a shark? Has that ever? Knock on wood, no. Um, uh. Not while I've been in the water. So, but they're, you know, they're out there. And I have been injured and I am afraid of injury. And I guess the answer is that I think with any kind of fear, you kind of, you have to kind of look at it and try to figure out where is that fear coming from? And is it a fear that's going to keep, that's a good fear to have? Like, should I keep, like, take precautions and what have you because of that? Or is this just an insecurity that I have that's in my head because I don't think of myself as the kind of person who does X, Y, or Z? And that was a lot of what I had to work on with surfing. But again, I think a lot of the dangers of surfing are greatly lessened if you know what you're doing and if you always pay attention, right? I mean, surfing takes right. one of the things that's great about it is that it is one of the most present activities you can possibly do because you need to pay attention to what the ocean is doing. You need to pay attention to what other surfers are doing, um, the way the tide is changing, where the currents are going so that you can stay safe. And so again, one thing, if you are afraid Take a lesson, go out with an expert who's going to help you figure out, you know, where are your weak points, where are your strengths, how, how should you be looking at the ocean and how should you be handling your board? The way you describe it in the book, it, it sounds like a very meditative thing to do. I mean, you're, you're totally, I hate to say it, it sounds so cliched, but you're in the moment yep. and that is deeply relaxing and deeply satisfying from what I read in your book. Yeah. I tried, I tried surfing once. Uh -huh. I took a lesson. Good. Oh, uh, unlike you, I get seasick on a swing uh, and I just got so nauseous. Yeah. I had to get out of the water. I couldn't do it. Yeah. But I, I was so jealous reading your book because you really make it sound like Nirvana. Yeah, it is pretty great. But I think, yeah, you do need a, a basic comfort in the water, in the ocean, because it is, it does move and it does change. <laughs> and But it is very contemplative and meditative because one of the things that first that I first sort of got when I went surfing was that you, it is a way that you can actually be in the ocean rather than on it, right? Like, I don't know, being in a boat, even, even a canoe, you feel, I feel like you're, you're somehow still, your experience of the ocean is still somehow mitigated too much. And right. with a board, some, it's just like it disappears. It's almost like it's not there. And you are simp are actually part of that aquatic ecosystem. And it just, to me, that's wonderful. Um, plus, you get to really take notice of your surroundings. And sometimes those surroundings might include a seal, right? Popping huh, a little head wow. up to look at you. Oh, that's um, great. Right? Yeah. Or, uh -huh. or a pod of dolphins kind of gently arcing over the surface. I mean, it's just, it's hmm. just magical. But I, I did want to say you can get these feelings with other sports, right? I mean, one, one thing that's very similar to me about sur surfing is, is skiing because huh. that's except for the dolphins, except no dolphins. for the dolphins, but you do, but with skiing, like you get to go to the top of a mountain or some 
elevation on a mountain and you get a kind of view that you wouldn't normally get. Sure. And you have that feeling of glide and swoosh. So those are, those are, to me, those are, those are kind of related. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a wonderful book. Once again, Thank I'm going to repeat the name. Well, I thought it was, you know, I was reading it probably in April when the world was falling apart. Right. You know, and we were stuck at home in New York, but the 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 world was only my apartment, and this broadened <laughs> my horizons. I'm it was so glad. Yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful book. Once again, it's called Rockaway: Surfing Headlong into a New Life. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you, Pauline. guest is Corey Ross. He is the producer of a traveling exhibit that may be coming to a city near you soon called Immersive Van Gogh. Hey, Corey, nice to have you on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, Pauline, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So I understand that this show started in Europe. Can you give us the history of the show first? Sure. So um, Immersive Van Gogh is from a group of creators who were involved in a show uh, in, well, a number of, of, of shows in Paris. And so the main creator of the show is a gentleman named Massimiliano Sicardi. Uh, and the composer of the music of the show is a gentleman named Luca Longobardi. And they're both Italian, Italian. But where they really had their breakthrough was in a venue uh, called Atelier de Lumière in Paris. And they did a number of projection art shows um, including a very big Van Gogh show. Uh, and for uh, American audiences, many may have seen glimpses of Massimiliano's show in Paris uh, on the Netflix TV show, Emily in Paris. Oh, wow. That's exciting. All right. So people have some idea what they're, well, some of our listeners will have some idea what we're talking about. Years ago, three years ago, I was in Montreal and uh, the great cathedral there, they have a light, sh- uh, well, a projection show where they have sweeping music and dozens upon dozens of different projectors and light sources hitting the cathedral in different ways. And it felt like I was seeing the cathedral for the first time because you have to kind of slow down and just look at it and let it wash over you. Now, you're not going to be traveling with any actual Van Goghs, right? So you're in a space and how does it work? You too are using many, many projectors, right? Yeah. So the show in Montreal, which is a fascinating show, um, it has a number of similarities uh, to what we do. There's a number of things that are different about what we do. But so, so first of all, Our show is not a traveling show. We're going to stage it individually and uniquely in a number of cities and simultaneously. Right now we're in Toronto, uh, and shortly we're going to be in Chicago and San Francisco uh, and hopefully more cities. But the the artistic endeavor begins when we find a building that is interesting to us, that has interesting architecture and, and is an interesting location, maybe because it's a, a location with some historic use that that our artistic use of it will kind of turn into a new direction. So we start by looking for the locale and then and then the art begins uh, with Massimiliano sending in a team who, who take all the measurements of all of the space, the floors, the walls, the columns, uh, the rafters, everything is mapped digitally. And then from there, he's able to begin to conceive of a show. And in our case, it's based in Van Gogh's art. But 
how it interacts with the architecture in the building and the whole piece becomes something quite unique and new um, both for the building and it's and and for van gogh so the experience that you have when you walk in is really like none other if you haven't if you haven't been to one of these shows huh. uh, every surface is illuminated with the art uh, which is projected we have dozens and dozens of projectors something like uh, 500,000 cubic feet of projection to give you an idea of the scope and so it's massive in scale uh, which is interesting because it allows you to see van gogh's technique his brush strokes his speckles his his uh his color work um you know on a scale that you would never get to see it if you were looking at the pieces themselves but it also brings the architecture to life uh and suddenly bricks uh, or or metal beams you know which seem really industrial become um you know organic with clouds or, wow. or uh, sunflowers. Uh, so are you saying that, say you see the show in Mon- in uh, Toronto, and then you also see it in Chicago, it would be a, a different show? It would be a different show. A lot of the content is the same. Conceptually, he may be the same in terms of Massimiliano's approach is to look at the psychology of Van Gogh. Uh, and his, his the, the point that he jumps off from to create the show is... What would the last moments of Van Gogh's life, what flashed before his eyes? Uh, oh, wow. And it's, it's sort of a stream of consciousness around Van Gogh's art. And when you think about what this would be, so it's, it's not like a standard gallery where you're going to see one piece. It's not about seeing one piece and then the next piece. It is an animated show where between the architecture and the images, we've licensed 400 images from different museums around the world of different Van Gogh pieces. So it's really you know, hundreds of images are, are molded together and one be- morphs into the next and, and things move within the images. So the sunflowers are swaying in the breeze and the clouds are flying overhead and the stars and starry night twinkle. Um, but, but things appear and disappear and as if they're part of Van Gogh's stream of consciousness. Are there, are there any words or is it all music and visuals? It's all music and visuals. So long, uh, Luca Longobardi, who's composed the music. Uh, so it's a combination of composed music and found music. Um, uh-huh. and, and that all works into this stream of consciousness that Van Gogh is having and that you're experiencing as you move through the space. And that's another important piece of this is that as a spectator, you're not sitting in a seat like you would in a movie theater or you know standing prone perhaps as you might more or less at an art gallery, but you are walking through the space and experiencing it as it cascades across the architecture and as you move through through the space. In the case of our Chicago venue, which is a fascinating uh, and quite different than Toronto, is, is it's a neoclassical building that was built in the 1890s. It's the old Germania Club. Oh. And so in that experience, you're going to move room to room through this old building, uh, whereas Toronto is the former printing press room of the Toronto Star. So it's a massive warehouse with extraordinarily high ceilings and it's but it's all huh. one big rectangle space and then in san francisco it's 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 really exciting we're going to be going into a, a building called svn west but it was originally bill graham's fillmore club um, and so that's the original nightclub where oh. the grateful dead had their start and janice joplin and the whole san francisco scene in the late that's 60s, cool um, well i saw I saw a YouTube video and it was pretty clear to me that you're also 
keeping in mind social distancing. In the YouTube video, people were sitting in or standing in circles on the floor so that they weren't close to one another. How much is that affecting the experience? Well, it's it's really been the only way that we could do the experience. We we sure. signed on to do this a year before COVID's began, and we were already um, you know well into it when the lockdown uh, happened initially in Toronto. And so we looked at Van Gogh's art and saw how circular figures have such an important role in what he does, and that kind of inspired us. Um, <laughs> so social distance circles are are projected onto the floor as part of the projection, which give people some instruction as to how to stand and, and keep sure. people safely apart. But you still move through. So what happens is as you enter the room, you'll choose a circle to stand in. Uh, but when you feel that you're ready to move, usually someone else has felt a need to move as well. So they will move and vacate their circle and you'll be able to move into the next circle. And in, in that way, there's kind of a flow that allows the public to walk through the gallery and around the gallery and examine the experience and the art from many different angles. And it, it really it, it has been the key. In Toronto, we've had 200,000 people come through since July wow. 1st all in small groups, all wearing masks, all in these social distancing circles, and it's been completely safe. Oh, that's great. I, I've been to the Metropolitan Museum here in New York and, and and another museum as well, and and it felt safe. I mean, if you keep your distance, you keep your mask on, I don't think there's anything to worry about. Knockwood, you, you know. Let me ask one final question. I think I know the answer. Why Van Gogh? Why was he your muse? Well, I mean, really, he was Massimiliano Sicardi's muse. Uh, okay, and so right. we, we saw his work in Europe and thought it was so astonishing that we wanted to have the opportunity to bring it here. I, w- what I will comment on is that I think during these times, Van Gogh has really touched a nerve and has been part of the success and the zeitgeist around what we've been doing. You have a guy who really, you know, had a difficult life. Yes, uh, he was isolated. Uh, he was often depressed and uh, and ultimately, sadly, suicidal. But uh, the art has transcended and survived and inspires people and 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 you know brings light to people uh, 150 years later. And I think really people are touching on sort of the combination of of how difficult his times were and how difficult our times are, and yet that it's possible to transcend. And that's quite cathartic for people right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, if people want to see this, what is, is there a good website? Is that the best resource for them? Yeah. Well, if you want to see it in Toronto, it's, it's immersivevango.ca. If you want to see it in Chicago, it's vangochicago.com. And if you want to see it in San Francisco, it's vangosf.com. Well, I want to see it in New York, so <laughs> I'm hoping you'll come here soon. Uh, thank you so much, Corey, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Pauline, it was a pleasure. Thank you. That was fun, wasn't it? Well, that's all I've got for you this week. As always... I'm so grateful that you're listening to this. Uh, I'm grateful that I have the privilege of discussing the topic of travel, which for me has been a blessing. It's a blessing I was born into, but a blessing nonetheless that I get to study how people live all around the world and then share that with all of you. Let's hope we all get to be out on the road in 2021. For many of us, me 
particularly, but I'm sure many of you too, this has been a drastically life-changing year. Not always in a good way, but it's about to end. 2020 will soon be in the history books and with the vaccine coming, knock wood, I'm going to actually knock wood here, we hopefully will be able to get back to normal life and normal travel soon. I don't know if I've ever been as excited for New Year's Eve and I'm going to be at home. I'm not even going out to a party as none of us are. So if you're traveling, even if it's just between your bathroom and your bedroom or your living room and your kitchen, may I end this last podcast of 2020 by wishing you a hearty bon voyage. See you next year.